Section 9 of a Collection of the Facts and Documents Relative to the Death of Major General Alexander Hamilton by William Coleman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 5. Interesting Letter. The following highly interesting letter from General Pinckney, it must be recollected, comes from a gentleman of the most liberal mind, a soldier of the nicest honor, and of tried and unquestionable bravery. This consideration will, we are sure, give to his sentiments on the subject of dueling the greatest possible weight throughout the community. Should the death of Hamilton be the cause of bringing into merited disgrace the disorganizing sentiment that a gentleman's honor is under the protection of his own arm, and that instead of appealing to the laws he is to look for vengeance to private force? And if it shall be the means of scouting from our country the absurd, unjust, and murderous practice of taking life itself for even imaginary offenses to imaginary honor, then indeed will not a Hamilton have died in vain. At a meeting of the Standing Committee of the Society of the Cincinnati of the State of New York on Wednesday, 5th of September, 1804, the President presented a letter received by him from Major General Charles Coatsworth Pinckney, Vice President General of the Society of the Cincinnati, which was read and attentively considered. Whereupon, resolved unanimously that this committee highly approves the sentiments expressed in the said letter, and that the Secretary forthwith caused the same to be published. The President also presented a letter from Mrs. Hamilton, which was also read resolved unanimously that the secretary caused the same to be published. William Popham, Secretary. Charleston, South Carolina, August 18, 1804. Sir, with deep affliction I received the account of our irreparable loss by the death of our late President General. This deplorable event has been sensibly felt and lamented in this part of the Union, even by those who were not personally acquainted with him, and who did not coincide with him in politics. By me, who have witnessed his calm intrepidity and heroic valor on trying occasions, and was acquainted with his transcendent abilities and amiable qualities, and honored with his particular friendship, his loss is most poignantly felt, and his memory will be ever most affectionately revered. Is there no way of abolishing throughout the Union this absurd and barbarous custom to the observance of which he fell a victim? Dueling is no criterion of bravery, for I have seen cowards fight duels, and I am convinced real courage may often be better shown in the refusal than in the acceptance of a challenge. If the Society of Cincinnati were to declare their abhorrence to this practice, and the determination of all their members to discourage it as far as they had influence, and on no account either to send or accept a challenge, it might tend to annul this odious custom, and would be a tribute of respect to the sentiments and memory of our late illustrious chief. If the State Society of New York should coincide with me in opinion, I should be glad to have their sentiments, how best to carry it into execution, whether by submitting it to a meeting of the General Society at New York, Philadelphia, or Baltimore, or by referring the matter at once to the different state societies for their consideration. I have this day received your favor of the 25th of July, 
and am much obliged to the State Society and to yourself for it. With sentiments of great respect, I have the honor to be your most obedient servant, Charles Coatsworth Pinckney, V.P. G.S.C. Colonel W.S. Smith, President of the New York State Society of the Cincinnati. The following letter from Mrs. Hamilton will excite the sympathies of those who feel for her individual loss and in it lament a great national calamity. Albany, August 11, 1804. Sir, to the distress of a heart so deeply afflicted as mine, from the irreparable loss of a most amiable and affectionate husband, I trust the respectable society in which you preside will impute the delay of an acknowledgment for their consolatory letter, couched in terms that evince their sympathy emanates from the heart. Although great mitigation of that affliction, with which I am so severely depressed, can only be hoped from the mercies of the Divine Being, in whose dispensations it is the duty of his creatures humbly and devoutly to acquiesce. Yet the wounded heart derives a degree of consolation from the tenderness with which its lot is bewailed, by the virtuous, the wise, and humane, and also from that high honor and respect with which the memory of the dear deceased has been commemorated by them. And those contemplated in the resolutions of the Society of the Cincinnati, transmitted by you, and for which you, sir, will be pleased to convey my warmest thanks to that respectable body. I reciprocate with sensibility your and their recommendation of me to the divine care and protection. May they ever enjoy it in without alloy. I am, sir, with great respect, your obedient servant, E. Hamilton. To William S. Smith, Esquire. From the Albany Sentinel. A brief review of the public life and writings of General Hamilton. While the public are everywhere lamenting the untimely fate of this great and excellent character, and bestowing on his memory the deepest expressions of veneration and gratitude, I have found a melancholy but tender consolation in endeavoring to recall to memory the principal actions of his illustrious life. His efforts in the public service were disinterested, unremitting, and manly, and his views the most penetrating and comprehensive. It is from a review of his political life and writings that we perceive and feel the more strongly the wonderful extent, strength, and activity of his mind, and the ardor and purity of a heart devoted to the public welfare. General Hamilton entered the army in the beginning of the American War, and while he was still a youth. He was soon taken into General Washington's family as one of his aides, and with the rank of lieutenant colonel. He was with the commander-in-chief in that character at the Battle of Monmouth in June 1778. General Washington, in one of his official letters to Congress at that time, says that Lieutenant Colonel Hamilton was well informed of his sentiments on every point, and he has since declared in writing that Colonel Hamilton was his principal and a most confidential aide. He commanded the American detachment that carried by assault one of the enemy's redoubts at the siege of Yorktown in the evening of the 14th of October, 1781. This was a small but brilliant affair and noted at the time for the rapidity with which it was conducted and the humanity that crowned the victors. The capture of Cornwallis was the last great act of the Revolutionary War, and Colonel Hamilton immediately turned his attention to the profession of the law. 
but the duties of that profession were always with him a secondary object, and he immediately entered upon that course of action in the civil department of government, in which he was destined by providence to act a part so eminently useful and glorious. In July 1782, he was chosen a member of Congress by the legislature of this state, and in the ensuing session of the winter of 1783, the proceedings of Congress were stamped with a new and striking character. This is visible to every observer who will take the pains of perusing and comparing their journals. Their reports and resolutions were luminous and masterly, both for matter and style. Congress made new, vigorous, and persevering efforts to give the Confederation all the force of which that languid Constitution was susceptible, by endeavoring to command resources competent to rear up and establish the prostrate credit of the Union. It would not, however, be just or decorous to impute this renewed energy, this unusual discernment and anxiety, which were conspicuous in the national councils, exclusively to the presence of any particular member. But this much is certain, that Mr. Hamilton took an early and distinguished lead in all the prominent measures of the session. He moved the resolution, pressing the states to comply with the money requisitions, in order to render justice to the public creditors and in this he early announced that great ruling principle of probity and policy, which he pursued through the whole course of his political life. He was chairman of the committee which reported a resolution to provide a sinking fund to pay the national debt, and which also reported the answer of Congress to the reasons of the Rhode Island legislature for rejecting the 5% impost. This answer, whoever may be its author, is excellent for the conclusiveness of its reasoning and the moderation of its temper. We find him a member of another committee which made an interesting report on the non-compliance of the states with the requisitions of Congress, on the consequent failure of revenue, and on the necessity of vigorous and effectual measures to liquidate and fund the debt and retrieve the credit of the nation. And he was one of the committee of three, which in April 1783 reported an address from Congress to the several states calling upon them by all the motives of duty, interest, and gratitude to vest Congress with the power to collect a general impost as the only means by which they could discharge their sacred engagements. This address is distinguished for argument the most forcible and eloquence the most impressive. And indeed, the state papers generally of this interesting session are models of composition and specimens of research, of talents, of probity and patriotism, which reflect the highest honor on our country. To deny Mr. Hamilton his full share of agency in producing them would be unjust, and I shall leave it to the good sense of every reader to draw their own conclusions from the facts which I have stated. It ought, however, to be recollected that a member from Virginia, and who now fills the Department of State, and who is well known and admired, if not for the energy, at least for the acuteness and elegance of his mind, was at this time an associated member with General Hamilton in the business, and probably in the labors and honors of the session. But there were other proceedings in that session which served to develop Mr. Hamilton's peculiar disposition and character. He was chairman of the committee which introduced a resolution full of gratitude for the disinterested and useful services of the Baron de Steuben, and he was the mover of the revolution for disbanding the army, and which was expressive of the well-founded confidence of Congress in the good sense and order of the troops, by allowing them a privilege, I believe totally unheard of before, that they take their arms with them. 
he appears also at that day to have entertained those sentiments which he, on a recent occasion, so eloquently enforced, respecting the full disclosure and free circulation of the true character and conduct of men in public trust, for he seconded the motion, stating that it was of importance in every free country that the conduct and sentiments of those to whom the direction of public affairs was committed should be publicly known, and that in future the doors of Congress ought to be opened unless otherwise specially ordered. After the conclusion of this session of Congress, Mr. Hamilton returned to the practice of his profession and soon drew to himself a general attention and applause by his talents and eloquence at the bar. His mind, however, was still directed to the progress and tendency of public measures. After the evacuation of New York, the conduct of many of our citizens was intemperate and violent, and it gave currency to the pernicious doctrine that the inhabitants of the Southern District who had remained within the enemy's lines were not entitled to the privileges of citizens, and that they were in fact aliens, subject to such penalties and disabilities as the legislature might, in their discretion, impose. To meet and overthrow this opinion, full of injustice and perfidy, and propagated under the influence of angry and malevolent passions, Mr. Hamilton published in the winter of 1784 his two pamphlets under the signature of Phocion, and addressed to the considerate citizens of New York. In these he stated and recommended with ardor and with energy the genuine obligations resulting from the Treaty of Peace, that no portion of our fellow citizens were disfranchised, but that all were entitled to the full benefit of equal and impartial laws, that a perfidious evasion of the treaty and measures of persecution and revenge would disgrace the cause of liberty and the spirit of Whiggism, which was generous, humane, beneficent, and just. These pamphlets carried with them universal conviction and put the contrary opinion and the spirit it was enkindling to disgrace and silence. The last pamphlet of Phocion is in a particular manner marked with that analysis of investigation, that deep basis of inquiry and logical deduction, which were peculiar to its illustrious author. In 1786, Mr. Hamilton was chosen a member of Assembly for the City of New York, and the ensuing session he brought forward a great measure, dictated by policy and patriotism, which required his talents and firmness to maintain. I allude to the bill for acceding on the part of this state to the assumed independence of Vermont. We were then at an awful crisis in our national affairs without a government to protect us, and just on the eve of a momentous experience to affect one. Vermont was, in fact, independent, but she was not confederated. She was a stranger and might soon become an enemy to the Union. This situation was delicate and alarming and increased the anxieties of this great patriot, who then declared, in a speech unusually solemn and impressive, that he was in the habit of viewing the situation of this country as replete with difficulties and surrounded with danger. The bill was opposed by counsel in behalf of such of our citizens as claimed lands within that jurisdiction. Mr. Hamilton, in a prompt and masterly manner, vindicated his proceeding and showed that the state was under no obligation from the principles of the social compact whatever they may choose to do, from generosity or policy, to indemnify our citizens for losses sustained by a violent dismemberment of a part of the body politic, which they had not the power to prevent or reclaim. This speech, and the one in favor of the cession of the 5% impost to the United States, 
were models of senatorial argument and eloquence, which were greatly and justly admired at the time, and contributed in no small degree to his increasing fame and importance. In the last speech, he took an enlarged view of the history and state of the Union, and undertook to demonstrate that there was no constitutional impediment to the adoption of the bill, that there was no danger to be apprehended to the public liberty from giving the power in question to the United States, that in the views of revenue the measure was indispensable, and that this country would soon be involved in misery and ruin if our national affairs were left much longer to float in the chaos in which they were then involved. He at that time made a bold, frank, and affecting appeal to the uniform tenor of his life and character. If in the public stations I have filled, I have acquitted myself with zeal, fidelity, and disinterestedness. If in the private walk of life my conduct has been unstained by any dishonorable act, I have a right to the confidence of those to whom I address myself. During this session of our legislature, Mr. Hamilton was chosen one of the three members to represent this state in the General Convention at Philadelphia, and he devoted the summer of 1787 to a faithful discharge of that important trust. A revolution in our national government was now at hand, and no man of strength and maturity, and whose breast was warmed with one spark of generous sensation, but felt for the perilous situation of the country and contemplated with reverence the obligations it created. Mr. Hamilton was not of a nature to shrink from the crisis. He took a great and splendid share in the responsibilities of the day, and by writing and speaking and acting, he acquitted himself in a manner that ensured the admiration of his contemporaries and will transmit his fame to posterity. His particular services in the convention are not accurately known to the public, as the doors of that body were closed and their journals have never been published. I will take the liberty, however, of mentioning a remark once made by a very respectable member of the convention from a neighboring state, and leave those who can correct me to appreciate it as it may deserve. He said that if the Constitution did not succeed on trial, Mr. Hamilton was less responsible for that result than any other member, for he fully and frankly pointed out to the convention what he apprehended were the infirmities to which it was liable, and that if it answered the fond expectations of the public, the community would be more indebted to Mr. Hamilton than to any other member, for after its essential outlines were agreed to, he labored the most indefatigably to heal those infirmities and to guard against the evils to which they might expose it. After the publication of the Constitution, Mr. Hamilton, in concert with Mr. Jay and Mr. Madison, commenced The Federalist, a series of essays under the signature of Publius, addressed to the people of this state in favor of the adoption of the Constitution. These papers first made their appearance in the Daily Prince early in November 1787, and the work was not concluded until a short time previous to the meeting of the State Convention in June 1788. It may be difficult to point out with precision the part that Mr. Hamilton took in the composition of these essays. Footnote. A key to the several writers is in our possession. Editor. End footnote. It is, however, well understood that Mr. Jay took but a very inconsiderable share in the work, and that Mr. Madison took a deeper and more useful part, and that Mr. Hamilton was the principal author and wrote at least three-fourths of the numbers. This work is not to be classed among those ephemeral productions which are calculated to produce a party purpose, and when that purpose is answered, to expire forever. 
It is a profound and learned disquisition on the principles of a federal representative government and combines equally an ardent attachment to public liberty and an accurate discernment of the dangers resulting from an excessive jealousy of power in those unsound and unskillful institutions under which it has perished in almost every age and nation. This work will no doubt endure as long as any of the Republican establishments of this country, on which it is such a luminous and elegant commentary. The first volume discusses these three interesting points, the utility of the Union, the defects of the Confederation, and the necessity of a government as energetic, at least, as the one proposed. And this I regard as the most finished part of the work, considering the cogent and peculiarly affecting manner in which these propositions are surveyed, illustrated, and enforced. The Federalist was translated and published in France by Buisson, just as that people were beginning to run the mad career of their revolution. It was spoken of in very high terms, although one of the Paris gazettes thought some parts of it had rather an aristocratical tendency. Alas for the cause of temperate and genuine liberty, if the leaders of that revolution had not been visionary philosophists, prostituted infidels, and bloodthirsty demagogues, the mild light of this western star might possibly have rescued that people from the tempestuous fury of the passions, from a constant vibration between scenes of folly and scenes of horror, and conducted them to peace, liberty, and safety. I am happy to find that a new edition of this invaluable work has lately appeared, in a very handsome style, from the press of Mr. Hopkins in New York. It ought to be taught in our schools and studied by our lawyers and statesmen as an elementary code of instruction and wisdom. Mr. Hamilton was a member of the state convention which met in the summer of 1788, and he was there actively employed for six weeks in enforcing, by his eloquent speeches, the principles he had previously and so much at large detailed in the Federalist. The sketch of the debates which was published conveyed a very inadequate idea of the talents and arguments employed in the mutual discussions which took place in that assembly. The speeches of Mr. Hamilton, which I should select as containing the best display of his sound and preeminent mind, were those in vindication of the constitutional stability and permanency of the Senate of the United States. In these he undertook to demonstrate that the organization of that branch ought to be as strong at least as they found it and that from the nature of man and the lessons of experience, it was to be seen that a firm, stable body in the government was essential to correct the prejudices, check the passions, and control the fluctuations of the more popular branch. The Constitution having gone into operation and the executive departments being established, Mr. Hamilton was appointed in the summer of 1789 to the office of Secretary of the Treasury. This office he held between five and six years, and when we look back to the measures that, within that period, he originated, matured, and vindicated, we are astonished in the contemplation of the various powers of his vigorous and exalted mind. His reports were so many didactic dissertations, laboriously wrought and highly finished, on some of the most intricate and abstract subjects in political economy. Among those reports we designate as the most interesting, his report of January 1790 on a provision for the support of the public credit, of December 1790 on the establishment of a national bank, of December 1791 on the subject of manufactures, and of January 1795, being his last official act, on a plan for the further support of public credit. 
Mr. Hamilton may justly be regarded as the founder of the public credit of this country. He raised it from the dust and placed it on sound foundations. His great moving principle of action in his department was good faith, was a punctual performance of contracts. And that the national credit might be placed beyond the reach of any stroke that could in the least degree annoy or alarm it, he urged to Congress the express renunciation by law of all right to tax the public funds or to sequester at any time or on any pretext the property of foreigners therein. He enabled this country to know, feel, and develop its immense resources, and under his administration, the finances advanced to a state of prosperity beyond all expectation, and so as to engage the attention and command the confidence of Europe. And so far from giving color to the vile calumny which has been insinuated against him, that he patronized the doctrine that a public debt was a public blessing, he inculcates with great solicitude in his reports that the progressive accumulation of debt was the natural disease of all governments, that it ought to be guarded against with provident foresight and inflexible perseverance, that it ought to be a fundamental maxim in the system of public credit, and which he uniformly endeavored to enforce by practice, that the creation of debt should always be accompanied with the means of extinguishment that the observance of this axiom was the true secret to render public credit immortal. In his last report, he recommends a provision for augmenting the sinking fund so as to render it commensurate with the entire debt of the United States, and he proposed to secure that fund by a sanction the most inviolable, and which was no less than to make the application of the fund to the object a part of the contract with the creditor. By such means and with such efforts did he build up and establish the important interests of the nation confided to his care. He has left to his successors little more to do than follow his precepts and to shine by the luster of his example. His report on manufactures is a chef d'oeuvre of the kind and the most labored performance that he ever gave to the world. It is not more distinguished for knowledge and investigation than for having given a deep wound to the tenets of the sect of the French economists, and also to another system of politics which had grown fashionable among political philosophers. The system I allude to is to be met with in Smith's inquiry into the wealth of nations. This report adopts the principles of the mercantile system and leaves the theory of Smith as amusing and beautiful in speculation, but which, in the present state of things, is not reducible to practice. That bold, profound, and systematic writer who attacked the manufacturing and mercantile interests of Great Britain as founded upon an oppressive monopoly lays down an entire freedom of commerce and industry, undiverted and unimpeded by government, as the best means of advancing nations to prosperity and greatness. The Secretary combats with great ability some of the fundamental principles of this doctrine, and he adopts the mercantile system upon the basis of self-defense, and as most wise, because Europe perseveres in the same system. All his principal reports are remarkable for uniting depth of research with clearness of perception, the closest logic with the utmost purity and precision of expression, and his official labors in this department, united with the honesty with which he conducted it, and which the most penetrating inquisition into all the venues of his office could never question, will perhaps form with posterity the fairest monument of his fame. Mr. Hamilton, in his character of Secretary of the Treasury, was also one of the constitutional advisers of the President in relation generally to the duties of his office 
and I apprehend that few, if any, matters of moment were transacted without the sanction of his counsel. The season during which he presided over the Treasury Department was unusually critical. The French Revolution progressed with a rapidity and violence that threatened to involve the whole civilized world in combustion and ruin. Not content with their own regeneration, the French rulers in 1793 adopted the intolerance of the Koran and began to propagate their new faith by the sword and to carry on an universal war, either of force or of fraud, against all the unbelieving nations of the earth and against all the governments under which they lived as being so many monuments of tyranny and superstition. At this awful crisis, a furious war is begun against Great Britain and Monsieur Genet is sent as minister to the United States, charged with secret instructions, which he afterwards published and on which he faithfully acted, to excite the Americans, even if their ministers should be timid and wavering, to make a common cause with France in the new war she had then commenced. To meet this important epoch, the proclamation of neutrality was issued by the President of the United States, and to defend that great measure as lawful and expedient, against the prejudices and passions which the French minister had but too successfully excited, the essays of Pacificus appeared. These essays were written and published by Mr. Hamilton in the summer of 1793, and of all of his productions, none ever appeared at a more seasonable juncture or were calculated to produce a more auspicious effect. Their object was to prove that the president had competent authority to issue the proclamation in question, that it was only a declaration of what was the existing law of the land, the neutrality of our government, and that as constitutional executor of the laws, it would be his duty to see that neutrality faithfully observed, that we are under no obligation from existing treaties to become a party in the war, that considering the peculiar origin and nature of the warfare, the United States had valid and honorable pleas against any interference, that the obligations of gratitude imposed on nations the mutual returns of goodwill and benevolence, but were no sufficient ground for war, and that those obligations would more naturally point to the hand from whom antecedent favors had been received, and which in this case was the amiable and unfortunate monarch whom the revolution had just swept from the throne. It cannot be denied that these essays were too well written and addressed themselves too powerfully to the interest and good sense of the country, not to have had their influence in rendering popular this important act of administration. And it is well known that the proclamation received afterwards the sanction not only of Congress, but of the community at large. In January 1795, Mr. Hamilton resigned the office of Secretary of the Treasury and once more returned to private life but he still felt himself charged to vindicate another important measure of the government, of which he had no doubt been a responsible advisor. I allude to Mr. Jay's negotiation and treaty with Great Britain. This treaty had to encounter inveterate prejudices and combustible materials, which spread their root as far back as the Revolutionary War, but which had been enkindled and armed with tenfold virulence by the pestilential breath of the French Revolution. Even at this late day, the temperate historian is admonished to tread lightly over these ashes of party spirit. Mr. Hamilton devoted the summer of 1795 to a defense of this treaty in a series of essays under the signature of Camillus. The first 22 numbers were appropriated to an examination of the 10 permanent articles of this treaty, and which articles continue to this day the law of the land. The remainder of the treaty was commercial and temporary and has already expired. 
The discussion of this latter part was not equal in interest, and being written with less attention and by different hands was not equal in ability to the other. But this defense, taken together, must now be considered by every competent and impartial reader as one of the most full and satisfactory illustrations that perhaps ever was given of a complicated diplomatic question. I presume there does not exist anything among the piles of European state papers to be compared to it, although one reason for this may be that in Europe no such precise and formal vindication of any national treaty has ever been deemed requisite. The beneficial effects of this treaty, and which are known and felt constantly to have at last accomplished what argument alone could not do, they have forced a universal conviction upon the public mind, and all the dead specters which were conjured up at the time to terrify the imagination and blind the judgment, have long since disappeared before the light of experience. It is to be observed that the question was not whether the treaty was in all respects the most desirable, for treaties are acts of mutual accommodation, but the true question was whether the treaty did not adjust, in a reasonable manner, the points in controversy between the two nations, and whether our interests did not demand, and our honor permit us, to adopt it. The sanction it received from our government, and the general approbation it has ultimately met with, overcoming in its progress the stream of prejudice and the obstacles of foreign intrigue and menace, have given the definitive answer to this question. The articles upon which Camillus more emphatically bent and exhausted the strength and resources of his mind were the third article, on the intercourse between the United States and Canada, and the tenth article, providing against the confiscation of private debts in time of war. I beg leave to recommend these two heads of his performance as uncommonly excellent. The latter is a finished treatise by itself and forms a chapter on the law of nations equally accurate, didactic, and moral. It vindicates the treaty stipulation on the ground of reason and principle, of policy and expediency, on the opinions of the most enlightened jurists, and the usage of nations. The last great occasion which called Mr. Hamilton forward upon the theater of public action existed in the spring of the year of 1798. It will be recollected that France had been long making piratical depredations upon our commerce, that negotiation and a Pacific adjustment had been repeatedly attempted on the part of this country without success, that our minister had been refused an audience, that three ministers extraordinary had been treated with the grossest indignity, and money demanded of the United States on terms the most degrading. The doors of reconciliation being thus barred, we had no honorable alternative left but open and determined resistance. And what was the power that had thus used us? It was a power the most terrible in strength, the most daring in project, the most unchecked in means, the most fatal to its victims, of any that a righteous providence had hitherto permitted to exist upon this globe for the awful chastisement of the human race. All the states, even of the republican form, that fell within her widespread grasp, the United Netherlands, Geneva, the Swiss cantons, Genoa, and Venice, had already been prostrated by her arms or her still more formidable caresses. She was at that moment busy in her schemes of universal domination and was fitting out a vast armament in the ports of the Mediterranean for some distant expedition of conquest and plunder. At this portentous period, Mr. Hamilton published The Stand, or a series of essays under the signature of Titus Manlius, 
with a view to rouse the people of this country to a sense of their impending danger and to measures of defense, which should be at once vigorous and manly. In these essays, he portrays, with the glowing and coloring of a master artist, the conduct of revolutionizing France towards her own people and towards other nations, and he shows that she had undermined the main pillars of civilized society, that she betrayed a plan to disorganize the human mind itself by attempting to destroy all religious opinion and pervert a whole people to atheism, that her ruling passions were ambition and fanaticism, and that she aimed equally to proselytize, subjugate, and debase every government without distinction, to effect the aggrandizement of the great nation. He then gave a detail of the accumulated injuries and insults we had received from France, and showed that her object was to degrade and humble our government, and prepare the way for revolution and conquest. He concluded, as the result of his work, that we ought to suspend our treaties with France, fortify our harbors, defend our commerce on the ocean, attack their predatory cruisers on our coast, create a respectable naval force, and raise, or organize and discipline, a considerable army, as an indispensable precaution against attempts at evasion, which might put in jeopardy our very existence as a nation. He considered that militia alone would be a very inadequate and fallacious reliance against veteran troops, headed by some enterprising chief, but that when we had made the defensive preparations he had recommended, we could then meet their aggressions in the attitude of calm defiance. So undeniable were all these facts, so irresistible were the conclusions which he drew from them, that in the summer of 1798 these measures suggested by Mr. Hamilton were all literally carried into execution by Congress and received the warm and hearty sanction of the nation. An honorable, proud, and manly sentiment was then enkindled and pervaded the continent, it reflected high honor on our national character, and that character was transmitted to Europe as a means of respect and a pledge of security. A new provisional army consisting, however, of but 12 regiments of infantry and six troops of light dragoons was ordered to be immediately raised, and Mr. Hamilton, upon the express and pointed solicitations of General Washington, was appointed Inspector General. On the death of that great man, he succeeded to the office of commander-in-chief and continued in that character for a few months until this little army was disbanded in the summer of 1800. During this military avocation, General Hamilton bestowed indefatigable efforts to organize and discipline the troops, and he improved himself greatly in the study of the science of war and of the kindred sciences of mathematics, geometry, and chemistry, of which he was particularly fond. And should any crisis have arisen in the future destinies of our country, in which some hero or statesman would have been wanted in resisting mischief or effecting good, the eyes of America would no doubt have been concentrated on this first and fairest of her sons. But alas, these dreams of consolation are gone. He has fallen by the hands of a base assassin. Accept, venerable shade, this tribute of a friend, who regards thy loss as a great national calamity and recollects thy talents and virtues with the purest respect and the fondest devotion. End of section 9